Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance. And today, which is normal for us, I would say, which one of the things I love about this show, we will be diving into some of the big questions of life. Uh, The biggest, most important questions that we can be asking. Why are we here? What is this realm? Is there a purpose to it? Are we in a positive place? Is it a real place? Or are we... Like we do to animals being harvested for some form of energy to something higher. There's a lot of questions on the table. We're going to be diving into the perspectives of the ancient Cathars and Gnostics, modern near-death experiences and what we can learn from that. All with our brand new book to talk about from Howdy McCoskey here. Howdy last came on a few months back and we had a really good conversation about multiversal ideas. He got me thinking about Moon Knight more deeply which we ended up doing, I think, a 20-hour series over, uh, me and some of my friends. And, man, that was deep. Really, really benefited from the book The Power of Then, one of your older books that I've read about half of now on ancient Egypt. So I've really, I've super enjoyed all your work lately. And we're excited about the the conversation today because it's going to be revolving around your new book, Exit the Cave which is about the possibility of reincarnation traps and like what to do after you die. Lots and lots on the table. I'll try to get us right into it, but Howdy's website is Egyptian dash mysteries revealed. Is it mystery or mysteries? Uh, Egyptian dash wisdom dash revealed. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Should have had that in my notes, but yeah, we're ready to get into it, man. Uh, Welcome to the episode or welcome to the podcast, dude. It's good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. Like you say, our last conversation was outstanding. It just, it went into so many unique places that uh, I'm kind of looking forward to this one too. Oh yeah, it's going to build off of the last one. We're going to explore some of the toughest questions to actually logically and truthfully know anything about. Uh, And so why don't you go ahead and tell us about the new book, introduce that to us, when's it coming out, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so the book turned out being called Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap. And it's it's a book one. I've I already know there'll be a second book for next year. This is kind of like 
foundation presentation, and then I'll take another six months after this to write up hopefully a more in-depth exploration uh, where this is going to go. It came out of so many people were really interested in my Plato's Cave videos that I had done a couple of years ago. And um, so I thought I should do one on Plato's Cave. That That's really interesting. As I started going into the Plato's Cave material, though, I ran into two huge issues. One was that the Plato's Cave analogy is nowhere near as good as it's being presented to us. It's presented like the pinnacle of knowledge of our realm. I found it to be really lacking. And then I moved back into material that I had worked on 20 years ago, dropped after my death experience, and kind of been forced to pick it back up again. And that is that this realm is built as a type of, we'll call it, um, yeah, soul harvesting prison or soul harvesting farm, and that we are tricked and deceived constantly into being in this place, a place that has, is not helpful to us at all. So from that, the book grew. I went into various creation stories. I went into the Cathars, the Gnostics, near-death experiences, um, lucid dreaming, um, you know, trying to trying to piece together something that could be helpful to us because like you, you know, I don't know what's going to happen for sure after we die. I don't know for sure how this world was created or exactly why, but we can start to pull some things out of the hat and start to see what might be true and what might not be true. And that's where the book's going. Wow. So, so many things to unpack in all this. Um, not even really sure to, where to start, but it's fascinating because this is coming on the heels of a conversation I just did on alchemy. And if there was anything that possibly could point to like the reason and purpose of the realm, the study of alchemy might do that since it shows the process that nature is going to use at all times to like grow things and purify and perfect and exalt essence, if you will. So how, you know, I, I look at it like this type of perspective of soul harvesting, loose harvesting, loose being a word for like uh, difficult human emotions and feelings that other entities feed on. I think that there's clearly components of that in the realm, but I guess for me, one of the difficult things to get on board with is the idea that it's only that here and that maybe there's possibility that depends on the path you take and depends on how well you integrate yourself in terms of like your salt and your sulfur to do that chemical wedding within. And I'd love to talk about like maybe, you know, the why, why you see it as just the the negative in the perspective of this book. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. For me, I come across now as a very, it'll be a pretty diff. It'll be a difficult read for people who want to look into this because I've, sw- I, I held on to a lot of hope for a lot of different reasons in the course of my life. And um, it's only been really in the last three or four years, I've really come to see that the Gnostics and the Cathars were pretty much correct. And their origin stories are very similar. Uh, which indicates a connection in some, some way. We can talk about these groups later if you want to, because they're very interesting. Um, but both had the basic principle that there was what you might call a, that we can call it a good God, but I don't know what they, they call it a father. And it had a, it had a male and female half. And this lived in a place known as the Pleroma, which is interesting that the place that 
where the Vatican now is, is called Rome. So it's, you know, very strange to, to, that they've used that name. But this, this is called, it was called the Pleroma, this perfect, absolute place of totality. There was, depending on your story, a, uh, um, a, a secondary creation that created, uh, uh, that produced this uh, uh, evil creator god known as the Demiurge in uh, Gnosticism, Rex Mundi to the Cathars, various names and other traditions. And it was this creator that created our entire material realm and not just material, but astral, etheric, all of Plato's cave that you can think of. Plato's cave is not just a material world. It's, it's every kind of world where there's any kind of duality, where there's any kind of separation. So we have this realm, which is, created what you i kind of uh, come to see um the demiurge directs monday more like a creator more like are um, more like a computer more like an ai so it's it's like a giant computer system that has has created a perfect mathematical geometrical harmonic principle of creation but that harmonic and principle has only one purpose that purpose is is to create power within it to suck back into the computer system itself. So the computer will keep running. That's the best. It's not, that's not exactly what I think it's like, but it's the best metaphor I can use. So from that metaphor starts to lead me to see that there's nothing going on here. That's not designed to trick us, deceive us, steal our energy, fool us. And it even fools us by trying to make the place look really good and make it look like good things are happening. But that's part of the trick as well. So some interesting things you pointed out there. I never made the connection that Pleroma has Rome in it. But the word Rome yeah. definitely is deep. Like Prometheus, for example, has basically got Rome in it as well. And Prometheus would be like the being that brought fire from the gods to humanity. Sort of the one of the first um, seemingly positive trickster savior archetypes out there or an early one. I'm very fascinated too with this. So I'm going to try to get into some more language stuff here. Sophia, right? This is the Gnostic goddess of wisdom who created the uh, abortion that is called the Demiurge and that right. Sophia means wisdom. What's right. fascinating to me about Sophia is because serpents are correlated with wisdom, right? And right. the serpent in, in Genesis tempts Eve. Eve is right. a fascinating word because it means life in Hebrew. But right. if you take the yod heh vav heh, which is said to be the unpronounceable tetragrammaton name of Jehovah, turns into Yov mm -hmm. as well. yod heh vav heh could transliterate into English letters as I-E-V-E, -E, which would be Eve. So Eve would be, and, and the, the I also looks like an L phonetically. So Eve, yeah. <laughs> if you drop the yod of yod heh vav heh, it's Eve. And if you drop the, or if you turn the I to an L, then you have Eve, which is life and L. So the life of L is Eve L, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to that. And then a few other things like, okay, so Bacchus is one of the old archetypes of the savior, Mercury, yeah. Jesus character, who also is representative of the sun. The sun is correlated with the idea of the craftsman, which is what Demiurge means as well. Uh, Demiurge. Right. You know, being a craftsman, Jesus is a carpenter. There's a lot more language stuff I could break down into that. But Bacchus was also worshipped in the form of a serpent called Eve. So you have this, you know, mother, father in one being thing going on. And Sophie or Sophus 
or Ophis, I'm sorry. Ophis is the Greek word for serpent, which is Sophia. So there's all these ideas there. And uh, to me, what is helpful in terms of studying mythology is to see how it pertains to what we see in nature. And so I tend to see where I can attribute these types of myths to astrotheology. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily rule out that the geometrical harmony of the system and mathematical harmony of the system is artificial in a way or artifice. <laughs> it does seem like a giant sealed alchemical flask, especially if you look at it from the flat earth firmament perspective. Again, there's a lot there. That's why our conversations are so good because, you know, not many people are so versed in so many subjects to bring up pieces of information for people. And um, certainly the, the, the story of Sophia, which is yes, where she decides that she wants to create on her own um, does it incorrectly creates this thing that yeah they kind of call an abortion, which is the demiurge and the demiurge manifests a, an artificial simulation, right? In, in Coptic, it's called Hal, which is curiously the computer of 2001 a space odyssey also known as Hal. so you have this 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 simulated realm or you call it a mirror realm or a copy i think that's one of the words they like to use a lot that it's a copy so the demiurge couldn't create on its own it needed to copy something else which is also interesting because it tells us our the realm we experience even though we know our experience is flawed our perception is flawed it's manipulated constantly but whatever's whatever we are perceiving is a copy of something else it's not totally on its own. So that's interesting to start with. And then there was this idea, if we take the Gnostic part of it, that the Demiurge couldn't create, couldn't make beings animate. He didn't have the ability to create movement and action. And it was there that these, um, uh, we call them like um, Aeon type beings, so sort of close pieces of, of God, managed to get in and use parts of Sophia and put Sophia into all the creatures of this realm, the divine spark. And it's from this divine spark, which means we are not totally of the Demiurge's realm. We're not totally of the simulated reality. We have this other potential within us, and the realm is designed to keep us from our potential, to keep us from our own power, from what we can do. So it's when yeah, when you start unpacking the myths and trying to understand them, it, it leads you to actually leads you to more questions if you're really digging into it properly. Because well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? So another interesting thing is in the Targums, there is a version of Genesis, if you will, that Adam is the one tempted by a serpent, and in that metaphor, then of course, again, the Eve is the serpent in a sense. Uh, one thing that's really what I've come to think maybe going on here is that the maybe nature and the physical world isn't necessarily the fake or the artificial, but that the astral and the language realm have or basically our mythologies and our language and the idolatry of that or the fetishism of that creates possibly an overlay, an artificial layer, a matrix upon the primary reality where sort of like Baudrillard talks about, it becomes hyper reality in the sense that the real world seems less real because it doesn't adhere to the artificial layer that has been put on by language, by mythology, and that even thought forms having power and substance in some way and energy in some way create 
actual egregore like beings or maybe one being. So how I look at it is possibly all the generations and generations of the external savior and idolatry of the sun and connecting the external savior to being the sun and sun worship possibly could create some kind of uh, what I would call a sun demon. And that this being maybe even is what people see in the experience at the white light, whenever they meet Buddha or Jesus or Thoth or whoever, and this <laughs> is beckoning them to go through the light and carrying them across the river sticks, the forgetfulness. Uh, it's basically the ferryman Charon in another version. Interesting too that Charon has care or char in it, which is the root for heart, which is the root for carry. Uh, and it's why we have carpenter. Jesus is a carpenter, the car of Osiris, Mercury riding in the, in a, or Helios, Mercury or Helios or Abraxas on my shirt here in a chariot carrying the sun. So to pertain, to relate this all back to alchemy, this is what I find fascinating. That the external savior leads people to potentially find their inner Christos or inner light, their inner illumination. And then at which point they don't need the external savior. And that's sort of like Mercury because Mercury has two roles, trickster or helper. And Mercury has the polarities of negative or positive, depending on your relationship to Mercury or whatever step in the alchemical process you're at. The relationship of the parts in that step decide what role Mercury is playing philosophically. It's not always necessarily Mercury. Mercury can be the solvent, that which is like pulling, extracting something out, or it can be what is giving to another part in the alchemical process. So in alchemy, whenever you're doing the process of like solvent and like metal alchemy, I learned this from Ben Balderson recently use extreme acids like hydrochloric acid to pull the uh pull what you want the salts metaphorically out of the metal and the extraction to be able to create something that you could ingest but at that point you want to make sure and wash out the solvent you don't want hydrochloric acid in a tincture that you're going to drink and in a similar way like people will usually when they make tinctures they leave the alcohol which was the solvent and he's saying that that's actually philosophically a bad idea because you wouldn't do that if it was a metal extraction. You can get away with it with plant matter that you're using alcohol to act as a solvent. But the solvent is the mercury. It's the savior, Salvatore. And if we leave the external solvent or savior in our, in our uh, belief system, in our cosmology, is that kind of like basically opting to hop on the ferryman's boat and take a ride after death and get, you know, savored by the savior that like eats your memory or energy. Cause all this is like the most important part of all this is, can we retain our memories after death? In my opinion. Yeah. We, 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 we if we, yeah, if we see, if we roll this back a, a little bit for uh, everybody watching. So we we wind up with an issue and the issue being that we're told a few things. We're told one, this is a realm created by a loving God who cares about us, who's created this world for a place of learning, a place of growth, a place for, for experience, a place where we will um, be judged on actions and then, you know, go from there. So that, so we have that as a fundamental belief structure. 
We have a second fundamental belief structure that somehow the after-death experience is positive and there to, to look after us. And when you look at the standard near-death experience, when people have had, if they actually have died in this realm, have gone to other realms, other astral worlds and returned, 80% of the time, 85% of the time, they're almost the same. They're very similar. It usually includes a white light, a tunnel, um, stairs sometimes. They feel an overwhelming peace, an overwhelming joy, an overwhelming love. There's usually beings there to greet them, whether it's dead relatives, yeah, Jesus, Buddha, um, there is usually a life review where they are shown their life, particularly mostly why they were not, not wonderful people in the life review and how their, how their actions impacted others. That's usually, that's very important, usually in the life review process. And then at some point, some being who is higher than them, more advanced than the person, tells them that it's not your time. You must go back. You must return. You have a mission. You have whatever. And they return back to, to the earth. Now, two things happen when this, when this is the standard. We can talk about the non-standard later because the non-standard is, is the one that really blows your mind away. But in the standard one, two things are, are clear just from that, just from that experience. The first is that when the people come back into their body and start living again, generally they become fantastic people. Like they literally do transform. They, they become helpers and healers they become kind they lose their self-importance and you think this is great this sounds like a fantastic thing but they're told things like often they'll say i don't want to leave i like it here well you have to go back meaning well your free will your free will and what you want doesn't doesn't matter we're we're telling you what to do and you can find if you look into the stories, there was always an agreement. They agreed. At some point, they agreed to go back. Usually, if you look closely, too, they were tricked or deceived. When they come back, they're often told they have a mission. But once they get back here, well, what is that mission? If you ask any of these people, what actually is your mission? What actually is your thing you're supposed to do? I don't know. I forgot. So this is just me. If I had, if I'm on a battlefield and we've got something I got to do and I pull one of my soldiers over and I say, Hey, we got a really important mission for you. There's something that's, if you don't get this done, we're all going to die. Great. Thanks, Sergeant. What do I got to do? Well, I'm not going to tell you what I, I'm not going to tell you. It's it, whatever. Just, you know, but you just told me it's important. Yeah. It's really important, but I'm not going to tell you. That's kind of what these experiences, the, the standard ones start to tell us that something is seriously wrong with the whole story. And yeah, if you start moving into the non-standard ones, it starts really telling you maybe what's going on, that these might be, I call them, I call them propaganda pieces. This might be giant tricks to make people think the white light and the beings that they're going to meet there are their friend when they might be the very thing that's going to keep you trapped in this loop for thousands of years. Yeah, I think, so I I definitely want to explore the NDE question more, but I realized that I kind of jumped into the the deeper end right away. And maybe we should back up a little bit and talk about Plato's cave as a story. And you can give us the, you know, what we actually get of Plato's cave, your thoughts on what may have possibly been involved in the story and edited out, you know, your critique of the story. Yeah. Because that's going to be a really good way to move forward in the conversation. We can start. Let's start. This is here's a perfect example. I know you've studied the story. You know the story really well. If you had to break it down to like three sentences, for example, how would you, how would you define Plato's cave? That 
uh, humanity is metaphorically in a cave tied down watching shadows on a wall or like a movie. Although if we're going strictly with what's in Plato's cave, it's shadows cast on the wall by beings behind the chained entity entities. And that the only beings that ever got out of the cave were dragged out into the light and they didn't get out of their own accord. Yeah. So that, that would be, that's a perfect three sentence explanation of Plato's cave. And for years I had, I, cause I had been told this is the story. This is the story to explain reality. It, it's the basis of movies like dark city, the matrix Truman show, uh, you know, tons of these stories are all, uh, examples of Plato's cave. So when I started rereading it six months ago, I realized right away there's problems. The first problem is this, the story, the allegory starts, there are prisoners who have been chained into a cave since just after birth. And we're missing the first question. What prisoners? Why are they prisoners? Where did they come from? Why are they, why do these prisoners need to be taken to a cave and not a prisoner of war camp? Uh, so that's first question right off the bat. We don't know who these prisoners are, why they're, why they're prisoners, why they've been taken there. Second question immediately that we come to is, well, what cave? Uh, why is it a cave? Why is the cave, is the cave like made by the people who are running it? Is the cave natural? Is the cave like, so we haven't even gotten into the story yet. And we've got two key elements of questions that the story has absolutely missed. So what are, what else can we say about it in terms of? Like what we can learn from what isn't in the story. Well, if, obviously the story's indicating that the prisoners are us. Okay, we, 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 can, we can get that. So it's telling us a couple of things. One, that we're prisoners. Two, we don't even know why we're prisoners and we don't know where we're prisoners from. So that's very similar to the movie Dark City, where the people of Dark City... Um, don't know that they're taken from one place to another place. They don't know what their real identities are, right? They're getting, they're getting their memories wiped every evening at 12 o'clock. So if there's, so there's a lot of parallels there to us. The second thing we've got to ask about Plato's cave story is here are these beings who are going through all of this trouble to run the fire, move the shat, move the objects in front to create the shadows on the wall. It's a lot of work to fool a bunch of prisoners to fool us. Why? If, if you just had prisoners, all you've got to do is keep a really good fence and the prisoners will stay in place. You, you know, they're not going anywhere. So why do you need, why do we need to be tricked? This is a really, this is also a really important question. Why do we need to be tricked? What are the people running the tricks getting from doing the tricking? And we've got a third question that comes right away is it's, we're told that the prisoners chains, uh, that the prisoners chains are not locked, that the prisoner can stand from their seat anytime they want. But it seems like prisoners don't stand. So what are these, what are these symbolic chains that are holding the prisoner down? Okay. So if we, if we rewind this a little bit, we can potentially say that the, the, the chains that are holding the prisoners in place in the cave to me would be agreements and contracts. This becomes a big thing when you start talking about non-standard, the non-standard near-death experience is that they talk a lot about they're forced to sign what are known as soul contracts, or they're forced to make all sorts of agreements that they don't want to make, or they're ob- you're obviously being tricked into these agreements. That, to me, would be the, the bonds of the, that as long as you don't know an agreement or a contract you've gotten into, you're going to have, you're going to keep running that contract because you don't know. So that could be the bonds that if for one, for once for some reason we break one of these things, 
uh, don't acknowledge the agreement, that might be the way of standing up. Why are these beings creating so much, doing so much energy to fool the prisoners? It obviously must be they're getting more energy from the fooling of the prisoners than they're putting into the shadow show that they're making. And the prisoners don't know where they came from because if the prisoners knew where they came from, they would remember probably what happened, why they got here, how they were tricked, how they were dragged into the cave, never mind dragged out, how they were dragged in. And if they could figure out a way to end it, they would end it. So it was important to make sure that they are ignorant of their past prior to the cave. How's that for taking us a discussion next place? <laughs> oh, man. So what? Okay. Getting a little bit away from the cave for a second, but there are some other po- key some points other that you make about the cave in the book uh, that I want to make sure that we touch on. First of all, though, back to alchemy. Oh, Moving sorry, fine on your camera because you're frozen on my end. So I, we're both frozen. I'm just making sure I look good on in yours. Yep, you're still coming through. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so I want to explore... Okay, because for me, I think that there may be a possibility that one of the things in Gnosticism, in terms of how moderns interpret it anyway, is that we're chained to the body. The body is a prison, that we're trapped in a body in a way. Like the body is the cave. Would you agree in a, in a sense? Kind of. Uh, I just literally watched a video today that talked about the, the philosopher Platonius. And Platonius explained the soul by saying the soul can't actually be trapped in a body. Something non-material can't be in something material. What the soul must have done was wanted to, for some reason, to enter the material and created a mirror image of itself. Literally created uh narcissist looking at himself in the pond that that mythology is or that story is really a story of how the soul created itself into matter without actually entering matter in a way so that it could be staring at itself really interesting metaphor when you see it that way yeah i could agree i i actually think that the soul could also be the void i think the no thingness you know the the no thingness is the same as fullness or pleroma. Yep. And the mirror image that you're describing might be the void looking through, you know, because well, the I would disagree because I would, because I would say the void as you're calling it is still in the cave. It's also a copy of the real pleroma. So even when you're in the, even when you touch the void, you're still actually, even though you're almost out of it, you're not really out. You're still in the cave. And it just give it enough time and you'll be sucked back in. That's just my personal opinion of it now. Yeah. So let's talking about the being chained to matter thing in an alchemical sense, it could be, uh, I, I look at it maybe as philosophically deducible that to have experience, to have reality, to have any kind of story outside of just pure uh, nothingness slash everythingness. And, you know, all mm-hmm. things canceling themselves out with their opposites. Maybe we need, or maybe this is the structure that has to happen, philosophically speaking, for there to be any kind of experience at all. And whenever you talk about, back to alchemy, salt mm-hmm. and sulfur, salt has S-A-L, sol. You know, there's your, <laughs> there's your salvator, there's your salvation. And then sulfur has soul. Right. So you have your Saul, Saul and soul yep. and they're chained together. 
they they don't really so your salt and your sulfur don't really they're not naturally together right you're right. kind of like your spirit and your memory or experience are not together they're not the same thing and in body they get chained to the block of carbon of matter so in the embodied experience it's like two things that normally couldn't be together polarity wise are being forced together and then through the experiences of <laughs> negredo metaphorically mm-hmm. the difficult mm-hmm. experiences of life uh, that we're burning away impurities burning away that block of carbon to but also creating allowing those things to merge create the alchemical wedding which maybe is a necessary component for the all or the pleuromic aspect of ourselves to also hold awareness or memory salt of what it contains in spirit or soul. Does that make sense? Like there has to, maybe this process is about growing. Oh, growing it, it makes total sense. Then, yeah. And if it fails, the problem is the if, this was, if this was three, three or four years ago, I would have agreed with you because it all sounds logical. But now I see that even all of that is probably a giant deception and another, another group of falseness. That there's really, I mean, this is going to be harsh and people are going to ha- probably hate to hear this, but I don't see any value in this realm whatsoever. Zero. I, I treat it just like the Cathars. The Cathars had only one purpose in life. They, they claimed this was a re, this was a, a trap of reincarnation and their only purpose and goal was to get out. That's it. The material world and what happens in the material world means zero. It's all about getting out and never coming back to what I call a suffering pit of hell. So it puts me in absolute odds with everybody who has any kind of focus with interconnecting with this realm. I mean, I like being in this realm. It's interesting at times. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I don't like being in it. I, I, I hate this place. I actually hate it now. But I can appreciate interacting with it. I can appreciate being in a body. I can appreciate trying to be useful and helpful to all creatures while I'm here, knowing that I'm not coming back. I'm just, I'm not coming. I'm going home. Like I'm going home. And if a few, if I can help, if that's, if what I feel is correct and true and a few others can listen to me and go home as well. Great. But it means that I can't anymore find anything positive about being in matter. And so it makes me, I don't know, a heretic. <laughs> it's funny that even that phrase, pos- find something positive being in matter. Matter is a negative polarity. You know, mater, right. mother, feminine, negative, Eve, right. evil, devil. Right. <laughs> right. So that, you know, I get. Yeah, it's the, get it's the tonal of Castaneda, right? In, Can- in Castaneda's world, the tonal is everything. So it means anything that, how did you put it? Anything you could name is tonal. The Nagawal is the only thing that you can't name, and Nagawal isn't even, you shouldn't even use that word, but you have to use something. So it's really interesting that you do find this kind of weird polarity in everything, but it's not the polarity we think, and it's very confusing. i got to be honest. I know I, I may come across as if I sound like I have answers. I don't. Like, I'm being very clear. I don't, I, and I wish I do. I've only managed after 25 years of this stuff to finally come to 
some honest things within that I, I can't hide from anymore. There's things I tried to hide from or not accept. And I've at least in the last few years accepted a lot of things that I just didn't want to be true. And now I'm trying to figure out, well, okay, now what? Now, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with being in existence in something that you realize you were deceived and being into and are deceived all the time? How do you get out? And what, what tradition, and it doesn't matter whether it's Buddhism or Taoism or native Indians or alchemy or hermeticism, does any of them actually have real honest answers for where we are and how to get out? And again, I don't, I don't know, Chance. I'm not really sure how much there is in any of these traditions. Yeah, for me, the I like what Ross Bin says, that consistency is the hallmark of truth. So that's why I keep kind of circling back to alchemy, because across the fractal, you can see a similar dynamic in play all over from different reference points. But, you know, if back to again to alchemy. So alchemy is basically finding a way to transfer the memory of the salts into the sulfur, which would be like an oil component to create the mm. philosopher's stone, which is a version where those two things are so well blended that even if you evaporate the concoction of the philosopher's stone, when it condenses again somewhere else, it will still be intact with no, like none of the salt crystals will be left behind because they've perfectly melded into the oil. And to me, I think that is an interesting metaphor for possibly the death experience, because if you don't have them integrated, the salts fall back down to the ground, to the earth. Like your memory falls back down. You lose your memory after you die. Uh, and thinking of meditation practices, to me, like maybe the value, maybe there is value in some of these spiritual traditions that help us gain stronger attention abilities. Because I've had out of body, I've never had near death, but I've had out of body before spontaneously. And the experience always ends at the point where I lose my focused attention. And then, and then who knows where I go? I don't know what happens. Dreams are kind of the same way. So strengthening our ability to stay in our attention and not get lost in a train of thought that takes over us, that could have a lot to do with how well we can ascend, if you will, after death. And, you know, the last thing I want to add is it could be since reality does seem to be fractal, the reincarnation, you know, the white light is coming through another yoni into another physical incarnation, right? And how many people, how many people, as you pointed out, actually managed to go through the death experience and retain their memory or exit the cave one or the other? It's like, is it one in 10 million? Is it one in a hundred million? Well, how many sperm fertilize an egg to create a new life out of all the sperm that go for it? You know? Yeah, there's, there's, these are interesting things. I, I, yeah, I don't want to say that I didn't want to make it sound like all practices or all exercises you can do are, are useless. I don't mean that. I meant like the tra- a tradition as a whole where it has a complete set of stuff. I certainly think there are things that are of absolute of value to see where you actually are, get a sense of what reality is, how you interact with it or don't interact with it, because there seems to be a, an interacting principle and you want to get to know, you know, I, I'm not saying I would never say to ignore being in the body. Don't like say they tell people don't eat or don't have sex or don't do this or no. I mean, you know, you're, you're having a physical experience, whether you like it or not right now you are. So deal with, deal with the experience you're having, but what practices, yeah. 
out of body experiences, lucid dreaming. That's a, that's a really good way, I think, to start getting used to being and holding your awareness in a non-physical form, which is going to happen when you, it seems like it's going to happen when you enter the astral death realm. Uh, recapitulation to go over your life so that there's nothing that's going to be hiding when this life review happens that you're not going to be surprised or tricked. I think that's a really important piece of the, of the puzzle. I think, uh, learning how to pray and pray in a, in a way that's not external, but how to pray internally, uh, to yourself. These things I think are all extremely valuable, uh, to get us ready for what is something that uh, no, no one else is getting getting us ready for? If if anything, they're doing the opposite. And second part of the of the conversation came up is this is the memory wipe, and that right away, the fact that obviously we're having incarnation after incarnation, and every single time that memory is getting wiped. Maybe not completely. You know, maybe a young child remembers ten percent or fifteen percent when they come back, but most of that goes away really quick. So if this was a place of learning, if this was a school, if this was a place of growth, you would have to retain those memories. The fact that there is a memory wipe, the fact that there is a cup of forgetfulness that you are forced to drink when you return here indicates to me that it's all malevolent. There's nothing benevolent about anything at all, because if it was about growth, then you would need to know what you did in the last life, what was positive, what you, what you, what mistakes you made so that you don't start. I mean, when I go to grade five, I don't forget everything I learned in grade one to four. I mean, I, I know how to add and multiply or add and, add and subtract. So now I can learn to multiply and divide and made my errors previously. If you just keep coming back here and keep having to make the same errors over and over and over again, that indicates a loop of something else that's not here for learning or growth. And, and so digging into the memory wipe, then you dig into Westworld, you dig into the robots of Westworld, because that's what happens to them, right? The robots of Westworld, they get their memory wiped every time they've died, they've got cleaned up, they've got patched back. And before they get sent back into the, into the park to get raped or killed or uh, mistreated again, they have their memory wiped. So they don't remember if they, once the once Dolores and Maeve start remembering what's happened to them in all of their other incarnations, they realize I'm done with this. I'm getting the hell out of here. And I think this can't work. The reincarnation in this reality, the way it's structured as a louche farm, like Robert Monroe wrote about in his book, doesn't work without the memory wipe. If we remembered our past lives, we would have been done with this a long, long time ago. So, okay, so I'm still kind of thinking the realm of nouns and names and words could be the real artificial realm, the real shadows on the cave wall, so to speak, the cave being the mind in this sense. And, I, you know, it's like interesting. The Latin word for name is no men, no men, no men. None of us are our name. And as soon as we get into the realm of like you, this came up in the Castaneda thing to a degree, in my opinion. As soon as you get in the realm of naming things, you're now outside of the reality of if nature is a form of reality, which to me is the only reality we have access to. So I accept it as such. Uh, There's not a deer. When you see a deer out there, it's not called deer or Jeff or anything. It just is what it is. So nature before the layer of language retains its I amness, right? And that's all it is. Right. But we separate from the essence and I amness of nature whenever we get into the realm of names and thinking that things are their names. And we know in demonology that you need to know the name of the demon to control it. 
So, and so I want to talk yeah. about the, the loose farming thing. Because, Wait, so let me just get jump on sure. that. The naming thing before you get to loose farm. Um, I can say, cause 20 years ago or whatever that was 25 years ago, when I, when I took that Castaneda book to heart after it spent time with some medicine men, this idea was, if everything external to my mind was there because it's named in my mind. So it's only a chair. It's only a table because I say, what would happen if I could get to the point where there were no words in my mind? Uh, I wasn't trying to do it to, you know, obtain peace or I was just wondering what would happen to reality. And it took me about three months of certain practices um, to get the mind to actually shut down mostly by walking and it would shut down and eventually when my mind was actually shut down so there and i could be i was beginning to catch it there would be like oak tree would come up before i i perceived the oak tree it was almost instantaneous but it was like there and once that wasn't there anymore reality stopped like i like it literally just it's it, it fell apart it went away it became transparent it changed it, it wasn't the same anymore and so your comment, uh, what you just made, is so important because our external world is related to the internal naming that we have for it. Right. And they call the God Logos, the external God. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, though, OK, so I think personally where I'm at is I, I don't think nature is itself the the falsehood per se. But I do think that there's been a lot of traps and overlays woven to separate us from the like capital R concrete reality before prim primary to words and primary to, you know, language. And that's why I consider the astral to be the, the language realm. And I think that it might be the first metaverse when we invented mythologies and invented languages. And now people are living in that reality before the primary reality or overlaying that on the primary reality to interpret the primary and uh, looking back. Okay. To Rome, right? <laughs> I think that the vicars of Christ and the, the hierophants that are your mediators between you and the external God that they've taught you about, or the external uh, savior that they've taught you about. Those are the real loose farmers, man. <laughs> They're literally doing alchemy with the economics making you believe that pieces of worthless paper are more valuable than sunlight and water and resources that give you life force energy. And they're getting you to transfer your actual time and convert your solar energy that you absorbed from the sun or from food that absorbed solar energy into work and into products that then they're just giving you the worthless paper for. So like to me, that's, absolutely a looshing like a, a major looshing of humanity but yeah, i don't necessarily uh, I, I don't necessarily think that the reality is designed for for that on a higher level per se i think maybe it is i mean i can't say if it is yeah, or isn't I, yeah I, I do but yeah i know most wouldn't but i do yeah <laughs> so, because that that match that matches what monroe says in his book which is really interesting. So, um, and it's, and we can talk about that if you want to as well. We can go into what, what Monroe said. It's just interesting to me that we've learned this idea of prayer and it doesn't matter whether it's prayer to 
uh, a religious gods, whether it's prayers to spirit beings, whether it's prayers to angels, it doesn't matter, right? It's, it's something external to us that we need to send our energy and attention to so that it will, it will, we're hoping give us what, what we want. And that's an, you can just see that's a setup for manipulation and nobody is checking who or what am I really praying to? Is that, is that really what I think it is? Is that really what I say it is? Or is it something that's, yeah, just it's sucking up all my energy and gives me a little bit back, kind of like a slot machine. You know, you put in a hundred quarters, but it gives you back 85 to make you think like you're kind of in the game, but it's always designed to make sure you end up minus from where you started. And I began really thinking, why don't we pray to ourselves? I'll tell us, it's a bit of a story here. Why don't we pray to ourselves? Why don't we learn that all the power is within? Why don't we put our energy here? Therefore, we're losing nothing. So Not I was to telling the uh, self, native, but to the, uh, the essence, the true Yeah, the essence, essence like the self. thing that's what we truly are, yeah. So I was telling this to my native, one of my native medicine friends, Jerry, um, and he told me a story. And the story he told me was that uh, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, somewhere in New Mexico, Arizona, there was a place that had had a really bad drought for like about a month. And they had used some local medicine men to come in and pray for rain, but it hadn't worked. Nothing had rained. So they went and get this, got somebody else from the north. And this, this other medicine man came down, did his ceremony, and it immediately rained. And it rained for like three straight days. And they asked him, why did your ceremony work when the others didn't? And he said, oh, the other ones, they were praying for rain. So by praying for something, it means that it's not here. I was just praying rain. So when I took the story from Jerry, I said, so really what he was doing was before he started his prayer, he became rain. He himself was rain. So therefore, there wasn't actually a prayer between rain. It was a prayer between rain to rain. It was just rain speaking to rain. All there was was rain. So it would make sense that it would have to rain. And it was like, it was just a mind blowing understanding of, yeah, why don't, if you become what you're praying to before you even start the prayer, it's, it's like, it's automatic. I started doing this with blueberries. I, I love to pick blueberries in the summer and I usually have good success. I li- always leave a gift. I leave an offering. I make a prayer to the forest. But after having the story, I said, well, why don't I become a blueberry first? Why don't I be a blueberry praying to blueberry? And after I did that, the harvest was beyond anything I could imagine. There was just blueberries everywhere. And I realized I've stumbled into a trick. Uh, you know, a, a positive trick of, of this reality, of this reality. When you pray, become what you're already wanting to pray to. And it's automatic. It has to happen. It was amazing understanding. So <laughs> what's the other meaning of the word pray phonetically, right? Yeah, that's, 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 that's the concern is if you're praying outside of yourself, are you becoming prey? Is that really what it's doing by sending that you, you are being hunted? for your prayers. So what you're describing <laughs> is also the improvement or the, uh, the uptick of synchronicity. You know, you found a method to generate that, to generate synchronicity. And again, back to the alchemy thing, as the great work progresses, my understanding is that synchronicity and ease and flow state are the flow of that is increased. So to the point where things are manifesting closer, quicker and quicker to the speed at which you think or intend them 
which is <laughs> to me makes perfect yeah. sense why we wouldn't come in by default with that ability unlocked because again like if you see somebody doing something stupid in traffic and you're like I wish they would die and then they immediately get wiped out by a semi that's but, irresponsible but, but why, why would you be th- why should you be thinking you wish they would die why should that even be in your consciousness Ever. it shouldn't and why should why, why should why should we manifest why should we manifest into a place that even has those kind of thoughts i mean take take nature i mean you know people like to think nature's a wonderful place but how many worms just died in the last minute to feed all the birds how many mice just died to feed all the other things and i've i've heard my cat is a great mouse hunter i've heard m- mice scream as they're being as they're being tortured and being killed why do we have to have a system like that where everything has to eat eat each other just to keep going another day it's actually insanity and it doesn't need to be like that and and justifications to try to explain that system away it's all it is is a realm of suffering on all levels everything here is either suffering or soon going to be they're just in a break right now and it's going to you know as soon as that mouse gets hunted again it's back in suffering it's it's you know it's the the whole realm once you start seeing it it's just so crazy and and it's like but at the same point, what you just said is also true. We or any being, because I don't think we're different than the animals or the trees or the rocks or anything else. We all have the ability to see truthfully our situation. I think that's a big part of it. Just being honest, seeing honestly, seeing clearly. And every time you remove something false, every time you see through something of this reality or something of the overlay of yourself, something of these false layers of me there will start to be an ease because there's one less thing that's tricking me, one less thing that's deceiving me, one less setup that I'm believing. And because I'm not expending energy on these falsities, it has to mean then that whatever is still true that can get through in the realm will be drawn to us like a magnet. So it makes perfect sense when you said the further you go on the path, the more synchronicities open up to you. It has to be because we're not wasting our energy on on the false. We're seeing what's true. So uh, it may sound like Chance and I are kind of on opposite pages, but in a sense, not really, because I, m- most of the things he says I agree with, I just agree with it from a different angle, if that makes sense to everybody. Um, and, and, and that's, that's how I felt reading your book. I mean, you were saying things that yep. a lot of things that you're observing are not false or disputable. It's just comes down to interpretation of like, is that, you know, how, how we feel about it ultimately. Right. And that's, and that's the challenge we both have, for example, for all that we know and all we study, we're not really sure. We have a thesis that we've developed in the course of our life in the course of our experience in the course of our work that at this moment, things seem to look this way, but uh, you know, as well as I do tomorrow with some new information, a whole bunch of things could be overturned. A whole bunch of things could be seen completely differently. So I know what I'm sharing and presenting here. 30 days from now might be a bit different because things will reveal holes in my logic or holes in holes in the seeing. And I think that's really important for everybody is to no matter how much, how much we believe anything is to always be prepared. But tomorrow I might see something that changes it completely. That's an important part of the package, I think. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate a lot about the work that you do is that <laughs> you keep moving forward in your perspectives. You don't really stay in stasis but to finish the thought about Mm. to finish the thought about the quickening of synchronicity 
I do think that, that like many other areas of life, whenever we attain or we're on the precipice of attaining a higher level of personal power, there is this strange innate fear of success and self-sabotage. And like, where did we get mm. that program? Where did that come from? <laughs> Who installed mm-hmm. it in us? Uh, is it, is it something malignant about the structure of reality that brings that about? Or is it like other some people interpret suffering as being necessary to have uh, good feelings in the first place in a polarity way. Like I appreciate the poetry of Khalil Gibran a lot and it helped me through periods of growth in my life to read his poetry describing in very beautiful and uh, exquisite terms how without, without sorrow, joy doesn't exist. And is it worth it to, for me, is it worth it to have sorrow in my life for there to be joy as well? And for you, is it worth it? You know, that's something we all can decide for ourselves. And I don't think here's, that here's a, the thing. A true it's easy, it's easy for us to say this. It's easy for us to say this when you've got a fridge full of food and, uh, you know, you've got, you've got your electricity turned on. If you're somebody who's starving for the last, three or four weeks because you don't have any food. You're getting beat up every day. Maybe you're being raped every night as an eight-year-old. Um, what this, the, the, these people need this kind of horrific suffering so they can one day experience joy. No, of course not. No, it's easy for, it's easy for anybody writing this material or a philosopher who's, who's in this lovely, nice, happy, I mean, it's like the 1990s. When you look at the spiritual tradition of like the 1880s and the 1890s, when, 1980s and the 1990s when pretty much everything in the Western world was pretty good. You know, it's easy to write happy material. It's easy to come out with the Celestine prophecy and all this, all this kind of stuff because things aren't so bad. Well, things are going to, things are going to get really bad soon. And we're going to start seeing how this kind of philosophy handles now when people are experiencing what kind of horrors people are experiencing all over the world on a daily basis. We're going to find out what people start to think about real suffering because it's coming. And uh, for me now, no, it's not, it's not needed at all for anything. It's, it's only needed. I've realized it's only needed so that these energy, these beings can suck more of my energy so that they can steal my life force. And so that they can be strong and grow. And that's, that's all it's there for. It, it serves it. The purpose it serves, as far as I'm concerned, is zero. So I actually agree with that. And what I would add to it is that the word evil really had a deeper definition. Originally, there were unnatural and natural evils. A natural evil would be like you broke your leg while on a hike. Nobody did it to you. Just a normal course of going through life. Right. You learn a lesson through it. It's not unnecessary, extreme, excruciating suffering. And then there's the unnatural evils of some of the situations you just described, like, uh, you know, children being abused and things like that. And when we look at the difference between the two, nobody engineered the natural evil per se is something you kind of did to yourself. 
It's something that had to do with how you were operating your vehicle. Well, it, well, it, well hold, it, hold it. it. It looks that way. We don't know that because we don't know. We don't have memory of when we were in the pre-birth realm. And we don't know if we had signed some sort of agreement that said, I want you to break your leg so that you're going to be stuck in a hospital for this period of time. And then you're going to learn this lesson from it. And that it's all literally structured into our life that we agreed to actually go through the natural suffering, uh, that it wasn't just random or accident. So. Again, because we because we don't know, because we're operating on such little information, we're literally just walking around in the dark here. And <laughs> oh, it's frustrating. Well, I think that there's evils in, that are engineered into a society and into our world that are, are part of oh, this. Big yeah, we have that on top of us. By humans and maybe by beings that those humans are manipulated by or possessed yeah. by, for sure. And yeah. I and those create the traumas that allow for mind control. But in terms of the back to the natural evils, I do biofield tuning work. I help people balance their energy field using sound. And I've come to conclude that all injuries and illness have a, are a psychosomatic thing. You know, I can't say this causes that or the other, but that if, yeah. for example, you have an injury to your left ankle, that seems like, you know, you just twisted your ankle, you fell down, that that actually is going to relate to something very specifically about your beliefs about yourself or about your, your emotional state. And so then that actually becomes that type of, that type of evil befalling you becomes, if you have the self-awareness about it, if we, if everyone knew this about how their bodies and their energy fields worked, then that would actually become a very useful tool for you to know how to adjust your perspective sure. and your beliefs. Of course. Right. But that doesn't yeah, apply. Like we said, apply lots, to getting of, lots, raised of as a kid. lots of useful tools. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't apply to the engineered, unnatural MK ultra types of evils. But I think that it may be possible for us to abrogate the systems that have uh, influenced humanity in that direction. I don't think that those types of evils ha- and where free will is being like very much, um, you know, taken away from somebody I don't think those situations have to be a part of the realm. So whenever we talk about suffering, it is important in my opinion to delineate between like types of suffering (laughs) and reasons for the suffering. And that maybe not all of it is necessarily baked into this reality as a necessary component, but have been sort of cultivated over time by beings that found a way to alchemize or loosh over that. But we're we're at the uh, first hour, so let's. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a, that sounds like a break point. <laughs> yeah, we're we're at a good break point. How do you can you give people your plugs where they can find you and you know hear more of your perspectives and when the book's coming out? Sure, they still don't think I'm crazy after this hour. Yeah, um, <laughs> so the 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 book currently is out just as a PDF ebook. So if you're over at my website or, or through my U, the YouTube channel that still exists, Howdy McCoskey Talks, you can link to it. And uh, I've got it for a minimum donation of five, excuse me, $5. So I think that's fair uh, for it. It's 15 chapters, 200 pages. There should be a print book and a audio book coming out sometime in October. It's just going to take me some time to each one of those requires a little bit more work to to get done. So yeah, you can check them out there. And if you're interested, you can 
you can obtain an, uh, the PDF book early and take a look through it and see if there's value for it. I'm, I'm comfortable with the material and I'm comfortable with how I've written it. Uh, often I don't feel that way after I've written things, but I feel pretty co- confident that I, I like how I presented it anyway. I like the, I like the language that I've used in the presentation and hopefully others will find it useful somewhere in your own journey. I certainly have so far. I mean, having only gotten to read the preview version, not quite got to go all the way with it, but it stimulated all kinds of thought and helped me see more clearly what I think is going on. And it's fascinating how our perspectives align and where our perspectives can be not necessarily the same, but we're still looking at the same thing and agreeing that this same thing is still what's here, but like, what does it mean? And I get a lot of value out of this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. And then after the break, we can get into Lush and talk about what Robert Monroe had to say about all this. Yep. And also we're going to talk about the NDEs some more. I'm very interested in the non-standard NDEs. So, Yep, everybody catch us after the uh, the break here in the second hour and make sure you go support Howdy and his work. It, even if this particular subject matter isn't the, the book for you, there's so much value, especially in that Egypt book, The Power of Then. I've really, really got a lot out of that. So thanks for being here, man. We'll see you on the other side. so much for tuning in and i hope you enjoyed this conversation with howdy i always do like talking to him and i find him fascinating even with some not aligned perspectives or conclusions about the information that we're examining i personally find there to be a lot of benefit to asking these questions because these are the biggest questions we can ask why are we here what is this place what is life what happens after we die If we aren't asking those questions, are we even really alive, right? So check out Howdy's book, especially if you want to find out more about the Plato's Cave allegory. And, you know, some of the practices that he does talk about are probably helpful, like recapitulation. Recapitulation. I'll talk about some of the plus extension content in a bit, but I just want to say thanks again to Howdy for coming on and having this discussion. And not turning it into, you know, a debate or a I'm right, you're wrong type of thing. I am glad that both of us are able to communicate that way 
even with differing perspectives about what is very important stuff to explore and examine. And of course, I come out of the Michael Tessarion school on many things, including this, which is to say refuting these ideas is sort of one of the foundational purposes of my <laughs> of my entire existence <laughs> and not like refuting every aspect of every idea because there's a lot of middle ground to find you know there are archons in terms of human rulers so okay i'm going to get into what was in the plus extension then i'm going to talk more about some of my thoughts on these topics and in the future there will be more of me exploring this stuff especially from the allegory examination and astrotheology level. But if you want to get into the plus content, the second hour is actually about an hour and 10 minutes. We went long. You can do that on Rockfin or Patreon. Find the link in the show notes and support me so that I can give you more. I really appreciate everyone out there who's already a supporter. Patreon's a good bet because you get for $5 a month, the entire archive of a plus content and an RSS feed to listen to it as an audio podcast and whatever player that you prefer or Rockfin for $10 a month. You get the whole network of all the premium content. I think that's a steal way better than Netflix. <laughs> you never run out of stuff to check out learning and uh, fascinating material to go over. So in the second hour with Howdy, we talked about non-standard near-death experiences, you know, the 15 or 20% or less of outliers of people who don't have such a good time with the whole thing and why that it might be. And then we talked about soul contracts, which I find to be a fascinating idea too. You know, don't contract with Babylon. <laughs> There's a lot of value and a lot of wisdom in this idea. And even believing that we have come into life with contracts can sometimes contract us. You know, the idea of fate or destiny can be empowering in some ways. It might make you brave enough to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be brave enough to do, but it can also be limiting and even self-destructive. So I'm personally all for releasing contracts. Agreements are great, you know, or intentions are even better, but contracts, that word is very sketchy, generally speaking, at least when it comes to with Babylon. Obviously, you know, between man-to-man, contracts can be great. Agreements that we make and have uh, the right to hold each other to. But the whole after-death judgment thing is a interesting commonality in these near-death experiences that we examine more closely and, you know, from a very critical lens. And then I got into, like, ancestral memory, how that's the macrocosm of the microcosm of getting your memory wiped, which, by the way, I think that is the most valuable part of all of this discussion is, like, how do we avoid the memory wipe? Because I do think that could be a problem. Okay. And we talked about the uh, Helios cults, the sun cults and Satanism, Polaris as possibly the exit point from the realm. If there is such an exit, the uh, <laughs> asking the big question, if this existence is not our true home, what is home? And then how do you also discuss the process and practice of recapitulation, which is your life review, but doing it before you die and the value in that, whether or not, you know, the white light is a soul trap or any of that whole thing. The recapitulation process is essentially very similar to what biofield tuning does. But as Howdy describes it, it's 
possible to do in a very, very deep and elaborate and comprehensive, complete way, which I enjoyed that. And then at the end, Howdy gave us an explanation of something he talks about in his book, which is a visionary experience he had in 2009 about the creation of humanity and nature's purpose for that. So that's interesting because it does, you have to hear the description or read the book to find out more. But, you know, in some ways it conflicts with the Gnostic ideology dogma. But okay, so let me get into some of my thoughts here. First of all, the problem, one of the big problems with the whole idea of Gnostic ideology is that when you look at the sources for this, there's not actually a lot of agreement (laughs) about what the ideology is or what the dogma is. And when it comes to all of this stuff, anything really that fits into the realm of mystical or uh, religious even, and also near-death experiences, at the end of the day, we're taking somebody's word for it, right? That's part of the big problem here is that to accept any of this is true, especially if we haven't had our own near-death experiences, we're relying on other people's subjective interpretation of experience that is, you know, hard to even pin down or define. And so a few of the points that Tessarion makes in his programs where he explores and refutes a lot about Gnosticism as a concept is like, we're commenting here about higher dimensions that how could you know anything about them? And that gets back to that question of if our existence is not our true home, then what is home really? And the next question that is worth asking is, what did these groups like Gnostics and Cathars really know about the nature that they demonized? Perhaps they didn't know a lot about it, and that's what would lead them to demonize it. And not knowing a lot about nature would make life quite a hard scrabble, difficult survival experience that is painful and unhealthy. So, of course, that's going to make it all have a tinge of negativity or evilness to it. You got to keep that into consideration, too, because the people that know a lot about how nature works, they tend to be happier and healthier. And very few of them have a lot of uh, belief of the world being a prison or hatred of the world. You know, that's a big thing here is that like at the end of the day, uh, this type of perspective can lead you down the road of like hating the world or be a justification for an inner held hatred of the world. And I don't personally think that that's helpful on uh, any level. And the last question that Tessarion poses that I like to repeat that is very helpful to consider is like, well, if a lower God created this realm, didn't the greater God create the lower God? And then wouldn't it be like, like how, how would all this be possible? <laughs> you know, if we're tricked, if this is going against the divine spark that's within us and somehow enslaving a part of the greater God, wouldn't the greater God just be like, snap his fingers and undo it all to me. There's just kind of like glaring issues with all of it. And I do think that the wannabe rulers of the realm, the human archons tend to believe something very like all of this. And some people even think that the whole idea and agenda of depopulation which, by the way, depopulation, doesn't that kind of go against the loose harvesting idea? And yet that's what we seem to be seeing constantly. 
I don't know. Maybe, you know, to play devil's advocate, maybe the depopulation is necessary for loose harvesting because if a critical mass of humanity is reached, then they break out of the control system. I don't know. You know, it's harder to herd a bunch and, and ranch a bunch of human beings when there's too many to handle. I don't know. But there's some thoughts that the idea of, you know, the whole Z- Zabatai Sebi Sabatai Zebi <laughs> school of thought, which is like, if you do the most evil, most corrupt behavior possible, breaking the natural order or breaking the simulation rules, then that can somehow jailbreak the construct. Ah, I've heard that kind of thing before. Anyway, I have so many thoughts about the whole, I, this entire constellation of of belief system and I probably have more that I would like to say and I'm leaving it on the table, but this isn't the last time we're going to talk about it. You know, maybe not the last time with Howdy, definitely not the last time I'm going to talk about it. The point is overall that you kind of are going to get the world that you believe in or expect to get in many ways. And again, at the end of it all, What do we really know about the nature and the body that we demonize if we're in this perspective that it's all evil? And are we not exalting if we believe that the world is completely pure evil and a prison and there's nothing good about it? Are we not exalting evil beyond reason? And if we're, you know, if you look at things through a hermetic philosophy as opposed to a Gnostic, because they're not exactly the same, then also... There's the fact that exalting evil to the degree that is often done doesn't really make sense because in the whole, in the polarity of things or the the hermetic law of opposites, there's not actually even opposites. There's just the one thing and then the degree of it. So, you know, like there's existence and non-existence, but non-existence doesn't really exist. There's light and darkness, but darkness doesn't really exist. It's just how much light is there or is there not. And in the same way, I kind of look at evil like that, like, you know, there's really just goodness or just godness and the lack of it or the lack of perception of it is in the inversion of the way nature would do things, the confusion and inversion of the natural process, you know, live is evil backwards or evil is live backwards. I think that's really what it is. And so we look around us life, especially things outside of human control and human corruption, life flourishes and is powerful and strong. And, uh, don't, you know, when we look at the natural world, I get the idea that it's like gross to see or they can feel bad to see like how animals eat each other and that can look like suffering. But from another perspective, you know, do the animals really suffer the way humans can make themselves? You know, like when the gazelle is getting eaten by the lion, is it also adding insult to injury by like thinking about how it's not what it wanted or desired? (laughs) Or does the gazelle kind of like at the point where it realizes it can't get away, Does it kind of just go limp and go with the flow? We can't put ourselves into the mind and the feelings of animals, really. We can't because we're not them. So also, you know, 
some people have the same perspective about farmers who will slaughter their animals about that being cruel, but, and that the farmer is evil for doing that or something. And the rancher is evil for doing that. But when the rancher talks about it, they love their animals, but they love life and they love their family and want to support their family and life more. And on a higher level or like on a more essential level, when things are eating each other, since everything is light and energy at its core, isn't that like really more like the light is just merging with another light? Is it fully evil or is it that our perspective can make us feel like it's evil? Is everything evil in an illusion or is evil the illusion? <laughs> like ill you, <laughs> illusion. It's uh, when you're ill, that is an evil. Anyway, I could ramble about this all day. I'm going to play us out with a badass song by Lucas King, our friend Elsie King. Before I get to that, got to remind everyone, Music and Sky Festival is coming up. And um, you won't hear many more reminders about this because it's going to be October 13th, which is like less than a month away. I'm so excited. I hope to see a lot of you there. It's in Southwest, Southern California, Kuyama Valley. Music, Music and Sky is the festival being put on by... Alpha Vedic and Mike Winter specifically of Alpha Vedic. It's going to be a blast. It's a whole weekend, October 13th, all the way to the 16th, I believe. Yeah. 16th, which is a Sunday. So Thursday to Sunday, I'll be there. Many amazing healers, speakers, musicians, artists, soul family tribe is going to be there. It's going to be such a good time and in a very beautiful location. So if you want to go check out the link in the notes, the description here to music and sky, Use the coupon code chance 50 for 50 bucks off your ticket. Great deal. And realize too, that like they waived the parking pass fee. So that's going to make it even cheaper than it already was. And the ticket price comes with like organic farm to table meals for the whole festival. So if you look at the ticket and you're like, wow, that's too much. Realize that that's also factoring in food and it's high quality food, which is not a deal you usually get at a festival that's a camping festival. Usually food is like, you know, food truck stuff. You don't really know the source or if it's quality or you bring your own food and it's what you can keep alive in a cooler or snack food or junk food. So a lot of great advantages to the uh, music and sky in terms of the festival organization. And I'm really excited to get out there and meet everybody. Can't wait. Hope to see you there. Hope you're going. And now I'm going to play us out with this track by Lucas King called Procyon. He's making all kinds of new music right now of different genres, and I'm super happy about that. Probably won't be the first time I play one of his songs. Thank you, Lucas, for letting me feature it. And if you guys make music out there, particularly like singers or vocalists, you can actually check the link to this song by Lucas and his profile on BeatStars, where you could actually buy or license his music to create your own track and put your own vocals over, which would be awesome. And don't forget, he can hit me up for a tuning. Hit me up, chance at interversepodcast.com. We'll do a tuning. We can do some cards, you know, like the emperor here is what I just drew off the top of the deck. Well, the middle, I just kind of cut the deck. <laughs> anyway, uh, check out all the things I said. Do everything. <laughs> and thanks for tuning in. And I hope you guys have a good one out there. I love y'all. Bye-bye.